Hello and welcome back to What Happened, True Crime Chronicles. This is episode 25. It is the third installment of the O.J. Simpson case. And um, in this episode, we're going to talk about the Bronco chase, the trial, the verdict, um, and all the stuff that came after the trial, the civil trial, the armed robbery, and so forth. And so let's get to it now in a couple of seconds. So the white Bronco chase, which happened on June the 17th, 1994, this, ladies and gentlemen, became the butt of jokes for years, even now. So at about 6.45 p.m. on June the 17th, 1994, the police finally locate the white Bronco driving down a Los Angeles interstate. This is the white Bronco, now remember from last episode, that belongs to AC. Um, that's OJ's best friend. He also has a white Bronco. The two of them are, you know, fugitives from the law at this point and off on this chase, okay? So, like I said, at about 6.45 p.m., sorry, the police finally locate this Bronco and they start following and the chase is now underway. During this chase, the police obtain AC's cell phone number. And since this is the 90s, mid-90s at that, it was likely what we used to call a car phone, which was a cell phone, I guess, technically, but usually it was only used in the car. <clears throat> There'd be some kind of um, satellite or something hooked to the car phone. Um, so they start trying to initiate contact with OJ or AC by calling this phone number. During the chase, they end up talking to AC, who tells them that OJ is in the back seat with a gun and threatening to kill himself. The police continue to follow in slow pursuit. This goes on a while, so long that LA residents have time to make signs and stand out on the side of the freeway and the bridges overhead like the overhead lanes to scream out words of encouragement and shake their signs. Yep, you heard me. They were cheering on OJ. Some of the signs said, go Juice, go OJ, and other such signs. That was incredible to me. A fugitive who was wanted for the gruesome murder of his ex-wife and another man, running from the police, and they are just allowing it to happen. The crowd cheering for him. You couldn't make this up. But I was really young. I was only 15 and I did not read the room. This was LA only two years after the Rodney King beating and the LA riots which ensued. The city was a powder keg and a black man being chased by the white cops in LA was not sitting the same with them as it was with me. And this wasn't just any black man, this was OJ Simpson. He was revered and loved. He was one of them. So the chase and the phone calls continued pretty much up until the time that police could convince OJ to return back to his home on Rockingham in Brentwood. This chase went on for 60 miles and over two long hours. The police did not shoot out the tires. They did not put out barricades or spike strips. They allowed their hero, OJ, to drive around for over two hours like that. I mean, my thoughts were, what if he had killed or injured more people during this pursuit? The LAPD would have an awful lot to answer for then, wouldn't they? 
I read that over 95 million people watched the Bronco chase that evening. OJ and AC eventually went back to Brentwood and OJ's home at around 9 o'clock that evening, where the police met him and OJ was finally arrested at his home and then brought to the jail, where he would remain for the next year. So at this point, OJ had already hired Bob Shapiro, the famous celebrity lawyer who had represented Johnny Carson, Daryl Strawberry, Robert Downey Jr., etc. Now after being apprehended, in addition to Bob, he goes on to retain his friend Robert Kardashian, Carl Douglas, Barry Sheck, famous lawyer F. Lee Bailey, who represented Patty Hearst and Albert DeSalvo, that was the Boston Strangler for those of you who don't recognize the name. <clears throat> then he also proceeded to add Alan Dershowitz, the famous uh, lawyer who represented Mike Tyson, Leona Helmsley, and then, just to add a race element to the case and attempt to make it about race, they would do anything to get their client off. The team added flamboyant, outspoken civil rights lawyer Johnny Cochran. Johnny Cochran, who had represented Michael Jackson, Tupac Shakur, Snoop Dogg, and so on and so on. This group of high-profile, expensive, extraordinarily talented lawyers became known as the Dream Team, OJ's Dream Team. A lot of controversy surrounded the trial about whether OJ would have or could have gotten off with all that were he not rich and famous and loved. The prosecution, put together by District Attorney Gil Garcetti, included Marcia Clark and her hand-picked attorney, Christopher Darden. Jury selection took about three weeks and were selected by both attorneys by November 3, 1994. The defense hired an expert during jury selection who told the lawyers which jurors to pick based on race, sex, age, and who would be the most likely to be sympathetic to O.J. Simpson. For this reason, they wanted predominantly black jurors and thought that black females would be the best option to exonerate O.J. They wanted them to remember the Rodney King case. They wanted the black women to think about their sons, their husbands, their brothers. The prosecution did not look at it like that, and they also went with predominantly black women, believing that they would be biased against O.J., because of the abuse suffered by Nicole, and also they thought for some reason that they might be a bit angry at OJ for marrying a white woman instead of another black woman. They were wrong, very, very wrong, it would turn out. The jury selected were made up of eight black members, two Hispanics, and two white members. There were 10 men, or sorry, 10 women, and only two men seated in the final jury after some members were excused. Nine of the women were black. The trial started in November of 1994 and ran until October of 1995. Originally, the jurors were told to expect a three to six month trial. Again, that is not what happened. They were ordered sequestered by the judge, Judge Lance Ito, and spent the next year in a hotel room, isolated from each other, their families, their friends, the outside world. They had very limited access to TV or newspapers, almost none. 
These circumstances also led to the verdict being reached so fast after the trial. The jurors admitted later that at that point they were just done. Done. I actually watched a show after um, this trial. It was only a couple of years ago and it was called The Jury Speaks. And in that show, one of the episodes was the O.J. Simpson trial. And at least four or five of the jurors uh, who sat on the original jury for the O.J. Simpson trial were re-interviewed again and at the end of the episode were asked again if even what they know now, so everything that came out after that they never knew at the trial, the armed robbery, the civil stuff, the book, everything that came out after, if they knew that now and could make a decision again now based on what they know now, would they decide decide the same way? Out of four jurors that answered that, three of them said they would vote the exact same way again. What does that tell you? One of the black jurors, actually, and she's an older woman at this point, I don't remember her name, nor would I really want to name these people anyway, I guess, but she said in The Jury Speaks, she was asked um, if race had any part of it, and she said something to the effect of, and this is not a quote, but something to the effect of she had no intention of convicting any black man after what happened to Rodney King. And I was just dumbfounded that she'd admit that even, you know, 20 years later or ever. And that that did play into her decision as a juror. Anyway, back to this. The trial featured a host of interesting witnesses and shocking evidence. As it went on, it became pretty clear that the DA had an enormous amount of evidence tying OJ to the crime. And we're not talking circumstantial evidence. We're talking hardcore physical evidence. Opening statements began on January 1995, and the trial, as I stated earlier, was completely televised. Nicole's friends and family testified about the abuse, OJ's temper and jealousy. All of the DNA evidence was presented. They found a mixture of DNA on the glove found at Bundy belonging to OJ, Nicole, and Ron Goldman. DNA found at the house on Rockingham had a mixture of all three DNA, The blood on the white Bronco door was OJ's. There were socks found upstairs in OJ's house on the floor in his bedroom. They also contained a mixture of DNA from Nicole, Ron, and OJ. The timeline of events was presented, showing how OJ OJ easily could have committed the crime and still made his flight to Chicago. Witnesses such as Cato Kalin, who lived in the guest house in the back, testified. He told of how he was home and the house shook with the terrible bang that night. He told of him and OJ going to McDonald's. He told everything he knew. When the prosecution admitted the gloves into evidence, they had a decision to make. They had to decide whether or not to put the officer who found the gloves on the stand to testify. The reason this was a question is because the defense was attempting to paint this case as a racially motivated arrest that a racist white LAPD only focused on OJ because of his color and ignored other evidence. The officer who found the glove was named Mark Furman. That's the name that anyone who's familiar with this case will recognize immediately. He had a reputation for being a racist, but at that point, there was no actual evidence of that. The prosecution put Mark Furman on the stand. They put him on the stand 
because he found the glove at Bundy and also he was also the first person over the gate at Rockingham. He was given that permission from his superior on the scene, but still he was the first person on the on the OJ's property that night and I believe he was one of the people that found the second glove, the match for the left-hand glove. Um, so, as I said, the prosecution put him on the stand. That became a big problem because he was most definitely a racist, as we were all about to find out. On the stand, Mark was asked to recount the events of the night, which he did, and he was also asked, I believe by Johnny Cochran, but I could be wrong about that, if he had ever used the N-word. He stated repeatedly that he had never used the N-word, that there would never be any evidence that would come out that would dispute that anyone who says differently is just plain lying. Of course, the Dream Team found tapes. They became known as the Furman Tapes. They were of Mark Furman giving an interview to a woman writing a book about police and their tactics. And in this interview, he is saying over and over again the N-word. That's not the worst of it either. He's talking about times that he and his fellow officers beat and arrested other black men in L.A. The tapes are horrendous. The stuff he says is disgusting, and it was damning. And this is the point where the Dream Team start trying to convince the jury that the gloves had to be disregarded, and most of the blood evidence, because the gloves especially were found by this obviously racist piece of shit cop. It was a huge slap to the prosecution, one from which they would not recover. And they weren't disregarded either, as the world now knows. At one particularly painful part of the trial, prosecutor Christopher Darden, to everyone's surprise, including Marsha Clark, the other DA, introduces the glove and asks OJ to try it on, live in court in front of the jury and the entire world, without knowing what would happen. This was a huge blow to the case against OJ, because here's what happened next. Christopher takes out the glove, which by now has been soaked in blood and other chemicals and sitting and in a dried position like that for the last year and a half or something. In addition to this, OJ had to, be, had to put on a latex glove first before he was allowed to try on the actual crime scene glove. And when he attempted to put on the crime scene glove, you could see that he was attempting to make the glove not fit on his hand. Not attempting to make it fit, attempting to make it not fit. OJ took the glove. I watched this live on TV and I remember just shaking my head at, he's not a great actor, ladies and gentlemen. Good thing he was a great uh, football player. He took the glove and with a great production of theater, he pulled and twisted the glove this way and that way, trying to shove it on and over his thumb, over his little finger, pulling it down by his wrist. And you know, his other hand would just slide off of it as if he was trying his hardest, but just darn it, couldn't make it fit. He never really tried to pull it over his hand. He held up his arm with the glove, not even over his fingers, barely, certainly not down over his wrist. To me, even at age 15, it looked pretty fake. I remember thinking at that age that I could do that, make it look like it wasn't fitting me when it did. 
I could easily take one of my own gloves and do exactly that, especially with a latex glove on underneath it. The gloves were size extra large and receipts were found in Nicole's belongings for two pairs of the exact same brand name gloves in a size extra large as a gift for OJ. There's no denying those gloves fit him and that those were the gloves that he actually had a pair of the same make and size from Nicole. The drama with the glove did its damage though and that was it. It worked so well that Johnny Cochran used it in his closing statement saying of the glove with the now famous quote, if it does not fit, you must acquit. All of the abuse came out in the trial. The 911 tapes, the photos that Nicole had been hiding, the secret will, everything. The gloves were found to microscopically match each other. Hair found in the knit cap found at the scene matched OJ's. Dark blue fibers were found at the crime scene matching a shirt OJ was wearing earlier that day. They were found on Nicole and Ron Goldman. Hair consistent with Ron Goldman was found on Nicole and vice versa. Um, fibers from OJ's make of White Bronco, which were only used in that year of make and model White Bronco, were found on Ron and Nicole. Hairs from Nicole's Aikida dog, Kato, remember the dog? They were found on one of the gloves. And there were shoe prints which were matched to the same size as OJ's, size 12, to a shoe type called a Bruno Mali. Now, during the trial, OJ claimed he had never owned those ugly-ass shoes. That's a quote directly from him, ugly-ass shoes. During the civil trial, brought by the Goldmans later on, they produced a picture of OJ in those exact same ugly-ass Bruno Mali shoes introduced into evidence. But during the crime, the criminal trial, sorry, that picture hadn't been found yet. Still, it was the size OJ wore, and there were witnesses that testified that he had shoes like that. The case finally wrapped up on October 3rd, 1995, 11 months after it started, with the defense claiming a police setup and staging and the prosecution trying to prove that the whole thing was OJ. If it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's usually not something different. The verdict. It took the jury only four hours to reach a verdict once it went out. With members of the jury later saying that they were originally at 10 to 2 for no guilt as soon as they went into the jury room. So as soon as they went into the jury room, they took a poll immediately just to see where the standing was. And it was already at 10 not guilty to 2 guilty. So they only had to convince two people. One was the white woman the defense referred to as a dragon lady. She was referred to as such because she had been in other juries where she'd been the only holdout for guilty. Dragon lady or no dragon lady, it only took four hours for them to reach a verdict. The verdict was shocking to most of the white people and relieving and exciting for most of the black community. The difference in reactions between the two groups was obvious, impalpable. Black people were all cheering and celebrating, 
while most white people were horrified. I just remember being really confused. With all of that evidence, all of it, they returned a verdict of not guilty. This is the case I always refer to when new cases arise and I watch a verdict come back from a jury, even if I think it's sure. I always think of the OJ case and how we, you know, we were so sure and what they did. You never know what a jury will do. Never. And also that reminds me of another case in which I did a podcast, the Casey Anthony case. Perfect example of another case with so much physical evidence it could fill a room and still shocking verdict. One of the things I remember the most about the verdict after it came down was the TV cameras panned to the Goldman family. I remember Kim Goldman, Ron's sister. She became visibly upset in court at the verdict. It was really hard to watch. The Goldmans never stopped. They used their pain and grief as a motivator. After the criminal trial, they sued OJ for the wrongful death of Ron Goldman. And that was a case that had a judge instead of a jury, less preponderance of evidence, and it wasn't decided by emotion, but facts and evidence. The Goldmans won the civil case, and OJ was found liable for the deaths of Ron and Nicole. They were awarded $33 million, most of which they have never seen to this day. After the civil trial, OJ did everything he could to hide his assets from the Goldmans, who were aggressively pursuing it. Ron's father, Fred Goldman, I've seen many documentaries about, you know, the OJ case, and I've seen Fred Goldman talk many times. He has stated over and over again that he will never stop chasing OJ and tried to make him pay for the rest of his life. It will be his life's goal to never allow OJ any peace ever again. That's a promise he so far has kept. After the trials, the civil verdict, OJ was broke. He had his pension and other money coming in, but it wasn't what he had been used to. And so he found a way to make more money. And what happens next now in this podcast for people who don't know, is just going to be absolutely shocking. What he decides to do next is sickening. OJ and a ghost writer write a book loosely about OJ's life with Nicole, but really is about the murder. He calls it, If I Did It, and writes an entire chapter about the murder entitled The Night in Question. I own this book and have read it a couple of times. The proceeds of the book go to the Goldmans. So when I bought the book, I had no problem handing out my money to the Goldmans. I would never have paid money for a book that OJ wrote if OJ was going to benefit at all from that. I I would implore you to go buy the book. The entire book is just a load of trash, honestly, from the front title to the back and um, at the very last sentence at the end, he spends the entire book basically bad-mouthing and trashing Nicole. The entire book. Until the chapter, The Night in Question, which is all about the murder. In that chapter, OJ 
basically admits to doing it, although he doesn't say he remembers the murder. He kind of says he blacked out during the actual murder, but that he was there and he had the knife and he woke up with the knife and he had just killed Nicole and Rod Goldman was dead. He also states that a friend of his came to his house, told him some rumor about Nicole, and he got so mad that him and this friend went to Nicole's and him and this friend killed Nicole and Ron and then took off. Now, boys and girls, just so y'all know, after watching the entire trial and umpteen million documentaries since then about this case, there has not been one shred of evidence that ties anybody else to the scene at Bundy. Nobody. Nobody. Like, there isn't footprints in a different shoe. There's no other blood. There's no other fibers, hairs, DNA. Nothing. There's absolutely nothing that says anybody other than Ron and Nicole and the perpetrator, who's OJ, was at that scene. So, I don't believe that. Again, that just seems like OJ trying to take the heat off of himself completely and still try to put the blame on somebody else because that's what he does, right? But he did basically admit to the murder. Now, after the book was written, the Goldmans pulled OJ right back into court to get any money the book makes ordered to them and not OJ. And they did. And that's why I bought the book, right? OJ was aware that he could write a book about the crime because you cannot be charged twice in America for the same crime. So even if he admitted in the book to killing Nicole and Ron, he could never again face murder charges for Nicole and Ron. That's called double jeopardy. And in the States, that's not allowed. So OJ could really get up in the middle of Times Square now and admit to the whole world that he killed Ron and Nicole. Not that he ever will, because he wants the world to believe him. He wants the world to love him. He doesn't want the world to think he's a murderer, although they do. The book, entitled If I Did It, wound up getting published, right? I obviously own it. And the Goldmans, as I said, now own the rights to it. Funny side note, when they were given the rights to it, they were given the rights to make changes to it as they saw fit, not to the inside content, but to the actual look of the book, right? The optics, the name. So they made a small change. They made the word if, in if I did it, very tiny, almost invisible, and placed it inside the letter I. And the letter I is very big, so that when you first see the title, it appears to say, I did it. That was a little gift to OJ from the Goldmans. And that's pretty funny. But was that the end of the OJ craziness? No, it sure wasn't. You'd think that after literally getting away with murder, he might want to keep a low profile and never do anything illegal ever again. But not OJ. In September of 2007, OJ Simpson and a group of his thug friends formed a plot to take back some of OJ's memorabilia that he had lost during his years of being sued and paying legal fees and whatnot. Because during all that, he did wind up, I mean, I say going broke, it would still be rich for me, but for OJ, it was going broke. He did lose his home and lost. had to sell a lot of his stuff. There was an auction. And this is where he lost a lot of his memorabilia, by the way, at this auction. Uh, anyway, OJ planned out, get this, an armed robbery with his friends. 
and with guns and threats of violence, they enticed Bruce Fromang to a hotel room. This was a guy who owned a bunch of OJ's memorabilia, allegedly. That's what OJ had been told anyway. And they held him in this hotel room at gunpoint and stole a bunch of his property, including sports memorabilia that did not ever belong to OJ, other people's stuff. Three days later, OJ was arrested for the armed robbery and charged with kidnapping, with use of a deadly weapon, conspiracy to commit robbery, and burglary while in possession of a deadly weapon. OJ's crimes were all finally coming home to roost. On October 13th, 2008, exactly 13 years to the day after he was acquitted for the double murders, O.J. Simpson was found guilty on all 12 charges brought against him. That couldn't have been by accident that date, right? The judge picked that date, you know it. And I've seen that before in other cases as well. And the judge threw the book at him. At this point, his a defendant with no criminal record, Yet he was sentenced to the absolute maximum of 33 years in prison with an eligibility for parole after nine years. That was the law. He served nine years and was released for good behavior on July 20th, 2017, ladies and gentlemen, and where he was freed then and he remains free today. O.J. Simpson, free today. I do remember hearing on the news that he was about to be freed, one of my friends pulled me aside and said, uh, it just came up on the news that OJ Simpson's being released. And even though I was shocked, I mean, he did serve the amount of time that he was put in jail and had to serve. And even though I knew that time must be getting close, I do not want OJ Simpson walking around a free person. I don't think the world is a safe place with O.J. Simpson walking around a free man. Even though today he's something like 76 years old. Anyway, no matter how old he lives to be, unless they die first, he'll never be free of Fred and Kim Goldman. Or of the most of the world believing that he did kill two people and got away with it. Well, guys, that's the crux of the story of the case of O.J. Simpson. Even though I'm sure I left out a lot, even in three episodes, I could probably make three more full episodes with the information contained in this case, you know. But I guess, you know, there's only so much we can beat this horse. So that's it. That's the story of the case of O.J. Simpson. Or more aptly put, the case of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of What Happened. This is True Crime Chronicles, and we will catch you next crime. <laughs>